Hello, how are you? Welcome to Season 4, Episode 5 of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods. I hope things are going well this week. It's snowy and freezing here in the Midwest, so I hope the weather is better wherever you're at. On today's episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast, I chat with William Rapetto. I know there are some popular assignments, things like literary narratives, where students will talk about their relationship to reading and writing. But I think our interest in our students has to be a little bit, a little bit greater than that in order to give them the space to, to explore their identities and explore what authenticity means to them because because that work is not only transferable to any job you'll get, it's, it's transferable to real life and interpersonal relationships and things like that. You'll hear more from William in a bit. I want to share with you information about an opportunity with Composition Forum. Composition Forum, an open access journal of pedagogical theory and rhetoric and composition, is seeking an editor or co-editors for its Program Profiles section. Since 2006, the Program Profiles section of the journal has offered a venue for showcasing exemplary writing programs, broadly conceived, and highlighting the scholarly contribution to our field that such program development and administration demonstrates including the ways in which theories, research, and pedagogies shape individual writing programs. The the Program Profiles editors review program profile submissions and work with the authors to prepare program profiles for publication. Ideal candidates will have an expertise in rhetoric and composition studies and experience in writing program scholarship and administration. Institutional support is not required, but it is a plus. Check this out. Small teams, up to two people, are encouraged to apply. To apply for the position, send a one-page letter of application outlining your qualifications and vision for program profiles to editor Christian Weisner. You can send over specific questions to the current program profiles editors, Ashley Holmes and Faith Kardica. Review of applications will begin on March 15th. Learn more about Composition Forum at compositionforum.com. William Rapetto is a PhD student in English at the University of Delaware. He is interested in developing a historicist lens that recovers broad economic historical movements from the minutia of exchange in novels. He is also interested in the overlap of English literature and entrepreneurship, particularly the application of literary methods to understanding business leadership. His recent coursework has covered digital intimacy, post-Civil War literary history, and literary theory. He's just submitted a brief chapter to Threshold Concepts, a book project seeking to capture the pandemic-era observations of early career intellectuals. That's going to be available in spring 2021. Currently, he's hoping to continue work on a seminar project that covered economic exchange in Horatio Algier's Ragged Dick, but is also looking forward to upcoming courses devoted to composition pedagogy and equity in pedagogy. I hope you enjoy my conversation with William Rapetto. 
you at today as we chat? Uh, physically. Physically, where are you at? Uh, I am in Newark, Delaware, about uh, two and a half miles away from uh, the University of Delaware's campus. Um, and yeah, I'm in my first home and just enjoying life um, and uh, hanging out with my cat a lot of the times because of the pandemic. Uh, mm. But yeah, it's been it's been great down here so far. I grew up generally in the area uh, my entire life so far. I've been um, really fortunate um, as far as I understand uh, graduate studies to stay uh, very close to the same geographic region. So. Yes, for sure. And what? But what's your cat's name? My cat's name is Onyx. Uh, she is eight months old or so. Uh, this was my um, this is my first time really, really living alone. So uh, it got to be about one week into that when I was like, okay, I need I need a little company running around here. So uh, I went and adopted my first uh, kitten. Well, that's awesome, and it's a new relationship too at only eight months that's exciting um so you're in delaware uh you're starting your second semester at at delaware as a phd student i'm right about that yes that is correct second semester at the university of delaware it's it's been uh, a crazy experience with everything going on um so Yeah. yeah like i said i'm only about two miles from the University of Delaware's campus, but I've really only been there uh, once or twice for small little uh, kind of bureaucratic stuff and not even um, not even really in any of the academic buildings or anything like that yet. So, uh, yeah, second semester, but I still feel still feel brand new or uh, like a prospective student in some ways. Sure. Let's talk a little bit about that, if you don't mind, because I must admit you're the first person I've talked to during the pandemic that started graduate school during the pandemic. So maybe you could fill us in a little bit on your experience, not only on like going to campus, but teaching online, developing relationships with peers and mentors and seeking out opportunities on campus and in the community. What's that been like for you? Oh my goodness. That was a lot at once. Uh, so I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> notorious for that. So take it however you want to. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, so as far as just being a student and going uh, to the seminars uh, via Zoom, it's been, gosh, it's been kind of a blessing and a curse, I guess, because uh, I did do, um, I've been to graduate school once before I got my master's at Villanova. Um, so I was used to the graduate seminar and sitting around the table and, and really discussing a book and really going in depth. Um, it's been harder to form connections with people, particularly uh, people who are out uh, or who are not in my cohort and also uh, faculty in some ways, um, because you just don't see them in person um, and have that, that uh, yeah, in-person connection. Uh, that being said, the, the people in my cohort have been really supportive. Um, I think we've been a really great group as far as looking out for each other, uh, kind of seeing each other, um, you know, as often as we can. Uh, given everything going on. Um, so that's been really great. Uh, as far as opportunities at the university, uh, UD has been really great for me as far as kind of opening doors and things like that. So um, in addition to being a student, uh, I actually got to write about this very topic um, for one of the blogs on campus called uh, 110.org. Um, they they're just a kind of standard writing blog for stuff going on at UD. And so I started this column called 
the pens of Blue Hens, which is the mascot here at UD, to sort of discuss what it's like TAing um, during a pandemic. Um, and it was more for uh, just casual observations and things like that, but but it was really something I enjoyed doing throughout the semester. Um, and then as far as the community goes, uh, I've also joined um, Horn Entrepreneurship on campus, which we talked a little bit about um, before we got started, uh, which has been just a great community, a really good social aspect to everything. And then um, I've also been uh, elected executive secretary for the uh, graduate student government, which includes a, a sort of liaison position with um, the New York City Council here. So, um, yeah, despite being being locked inside for the most part, I've been able to to kind of find all the open doors that UD offers. Well, you definitely got all of the answers into a complex question, so I appreciate it. And I want to hear more about that venture on mini grant and your time at Villanova University, but let's go back a little bit first. Sure. You got your undergraduate degree. Where did you get your undergraduate degree at? I got my undergraduate degree at LaSalle University, which is in North Philadelphia. And that degree was in history? My my undergraduate degree was in history, yes. Um, uh, and I very much, I, I loved the study of history. We We focused there a lot on imperialism and its fallouts and its causes and effects and all all those kinds of things so studying that in a really worldly context was great and i love doing that work there um at the same time i took about 10 or 12 english courses um but they weren't uh how do i say this none of them were surveys so it didn't really fill out the requirements for a major um, and so by the end of my undergraduate, I found myself in history classes writing a lot about literature and then in literature classes kind of infusing it with history. Um, and so when it came time to to um, apply for grad schools, I thought it was best to go with uh, with English. And when you applied to graduate schools, you wound up at Villanova, which, OK, I'm not from Philadelphia and I've never been there, but I believe those are both like two of the like big five universities there, right? Yes, they call them the Big Five. Um, and yes, Villanova is uh, a kind of contentious one because it's west of the city geographically. Oh. Um, so so people love to give you uh, little nuanced debates about whether or not it's technically a Philadelphia school. <laughs> <laughs> what led you to Villanova and what was your master's work focused on? What led me to Villanova? Um, so like I said, I grew up around here and and I really do love this area. So uh, as far as like getting accepted into a local school, it made the whole process kind of a no brainer. Um, on top of that, though, uh, they offered this really interesting program I wanted to take advantage of called uh, the Abbey Theater Program, which was a uh, about a month long summer semester in between the first and second year that was held in Dublin, Ireland, and then also in Galway, Ireland. Um, so that was a big selling point for me. Um, and then the assistantship they offered me uh, was like, I almost want to say a kind of dream come true for me at the time because uh, it allowed me to do a lot of blogging and writing uh, that wasn't necessarily academic, but I think was important for the institution. Um, and so that was at um, Villanova's Falvey Memorial Library. And uh, yeah, the the people who worked there with me were 
were really amazing and really supportive. And uh, I sort of knew from the day that they interviewed me that, that this is where I was going to end up. What kind of projects did you work on at Falvey Memorial Library? I, I held an assistantship in a library when I was in, doing my master's program. So indulge me a little bit. Yeah, so there were two major ones I worked on during my time there. Uh, the first one was just a weekly blog, a weekly column called uh, Cat in the Stacks because their mascot's the wild cat. So uh, that's what they went with. Um, and that was a weekly column where I was supposed to kind of infuse personal stuff with semesterly stuff with what was going on in the library. So um, each week it it was a lot of kind of thinking about how to tie uh, those stories all together. Um, and one of the real innovative things I did with that blog uh, was to tie it um, with some of the work that their theater program was doing, um, which was a also a master's granting um, program. So uh, once or twice a semester when they were putting on a play or a musical um, to sort of tie what they were doing with how the library could um, kind of build out the experience of going and seeing it um, with my own personal um, sort of reflection on getting to be there and stuff like that. So um, that's one thing that, that really sticks out in my memory that I'd love to do. Um, and uh, otherwise, it was kind of a standard thing where it offered um, sort of advice for getting through the semester, for getting through, you know, midterms, weeks and finals and things like that. And uh, yeah, again, it was just a real joy to write. Um, the other big project um, that I love to talk about was this diversity and inclusion topic guide that I ended up getting to serve as the project lead on, actually. Um, it was actually a, a question posed to us or posed to the entire university by their entrepreneurship center, which was called the uh, Institute of Innovation, Creativity and Entrepreneurship. Um, and they just asked the question, how can your team uh, improve diversity and inclusion on campus, which was a, a kind of broad question. Um, and I think it, it added something like, um, in a way that's inclusive of all 21st century voices. And so we had a couple of um, chats to start that process. And um, we were just going to kind of enter the competition just, just to show that, you know, we were a team and that we could work on something together and also that we cared about this topic. And so at first we came up with creating uh, a bookmark that could kind of be circulated on campus. Um, but as we talked more and more about it, um, I had this idea of something a little bit more adaptable. Um, and so I talked to uh, the web design team, some of the liaison librarians, and, and came up with this in-depth pitch about how it could be its own kind of web page or uh, study guide or topic guide on the library website specifically for diversity and inclusion. Um, and uh, when it came to the day where we would actually pitch this, the uh, Entrepreneurship Institute was was pretty impressed by it. So they gave uh, they gave the library a small grant to start the work, um, and so we did. And, and by the end of my master's program, we launched it. Um, and it had a big social media um, com uh, component, and it had um, its own launch party with um, with a few of the more prominent speakers on diversity and inclusion on campus, including. Um, Terry Nance, who's still there, who's just an absolute genius. Um, and uh, yeah, so we, we launched this thing. And uh, and yeah, that was kind of a big project for me, a big, uh, yeah, just a big, I don't want to say turning point in my studies, but um, up until that point, 
I don't think I, I was a deep thinker on diversity and inclusion. So it was an educational process, um, um, a work experience and, and some leadership experience. So, so that was really great. And then uh, the end of that was that um, the Entrepreneurship Center gave me a, a personal grant to kind of keep continuing some similar work. That sounds like some really important critical work that you've been doing. And I'm noticing a pattern. You're doing important work everywhere that you go. But so before we get to the University of Delaware and your work uh, towards the PhD in English literature, I want to note something and ask you something I'm noticing that is not apparent on your CV or any of the other things that I've I've looked at to get to know you a bit better is that you've mentioned the theater a couple of times. So I wonder is 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 that a passion of yours or something that you enjoy? Um, and if so, tell us a little about why and, and why you enjoy it and, and what you enjoy. Um, you know, I I was in uh, little acting camps and things like that growing up. I was I was never particularly good. I, I would be assigned roles like. Uh, um like i think in one one role i was a goat where i was just literally dressed as a goat and <laughs> and was on four all fours on stage so um yeah i should say I'm, I'm not very good at acting or anything like that but uh going to the theater i think is like an amazing experience um yeah. i love to see uh the work in memory and performance um that really really good actors are able to do um, and that included the people that I got to work with uh, at Villanova in, in that Abbey Theater program. Um, yeah, there's just something about that art that's that's like amazing to me that um, unlike a movie, they kind of have to hit all their cues and all their places, um, yeah, yeah. you know, live and, and right in front of you. So um, I love to go to the theater. It's a huge passion of mine, um, which has been extremely stunted by uh, the pandemic. But um Yes, definitely my passion more as a viewer than uh, as an actor. Um, as far as reading plays, um, I did enjoy what we read um, in the Abbey Theater program, uh, like uh, George Bernard Shaw and Yates uh, and people like that. Um, but I have to embarrassingly confess I don't really go out of my way much to read a play. Um, yeah, and I'm not even... I'm not even like a like a really big Shakespeare fan, which I feel like is a big uh, <laughs> like literary circle no-no or something like that. Oh, no, you don't have to be a Shakespeare fan. There's plenty <laughs> of other stuff out there. And I will say, I, too, used to really enjoy reading plays. I don't anymore, but but reading them, man, there really is something about, about that specific genre that is enthralling. I'm there with you. Um, okay, let's move on now to talk about what you're doing right now, and that's your work as a Ph.D. student at the University of Delaware. Yeah. So we know you're just, you know, the second semester in, but obviously you went there with a purpose, with a reason, uh, and with a focus. So perhaps you could fill us in on why did you want to go to graduate school and what are you studying uh, while you're there? Why did I want to go to graduate school? Uh, so... I know that's such a hard question. <laughs> I'm sorry to cut you off, but like I ask that sometimes. I'm like, nobody knows the answer to that question, <laughs> but give it a shot. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, after I had gotten my master's, I was an adjunct for uh, two years, um, first as a, well, the entire time as a adjunct professor of English comp at Eastern University, which is right next door to Villanova, um, and okay. then also uh, an adjunct professor of English as a second language at LaSalle University, which was my undergrad. Okay. Um, and I 
loved what I was doing. Um, I, yeah. I positively just loved every day. Teaching um, writing? Teaching writing, teaching um, English as a second language, yeah. um, also sort of through writing and through comp. Um, I was also uh, a writing tutor at LaSalle while I was doing all of that work. So my days were like very full, uh, but very full of what I, I truly love doing. And uh, after about a year, yeah, after about a year of it, I, I knew like, hey, I've, I've got to go back, get the PhD and, and do this uh, with a little bit more stability than adjuncting. Um, I'm sure your audience will know what that means. Um, and yes, yeah, so, they're probably uh, questioning the word stability. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good point. Well, wow. <laughs> um, uh, anyway, sorry well, to interrupt. It's, it's a spectrum. It's more, more stable than. Um, but yeah, so, I agree. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's where I found like my passion and what I love doing. Um, and yeah, after a year, I applied actually uh, to graduate school to to do uh, modernist poetry, which is why I said uh, on my email that I was in the midst of a rebrand mm. um, because I did ex- I did get accepted to Temple and I did get accepted to UD. But my first conversation with the graduate director at the time uh, for UD. Um, she said she said something like, but are you sure you want to study modernism <laughs> or something like that? Uh, <laughs> so uh, that began the process of, of kind of opening things up for me and, and thinking about. Uh, yeah, thinking about what might, what might be my other passions. So what have you discovered are your other passions as you've opened it up from modernist poetry and been in, in this program for a bit? What are you planning on focusing on the next few years? Um, so right now it looks like. Uh, I'll be I'll be studying mostly um, the sort of post Civil War era of American literary history. Um, I took a seminar in the fall semester with uh, John Ernest here at UD, um, who how do I say this? Who who opened my eyes to a lot of the the processes of history that I might not have considered in the past, um, particularly okay. thinking about how uh writers are a part usually of like a network of people of a network of other writers of publishers of editors um and these circles can have as much sort of influence on literature and literary history as as other big historical events um so my own work in his class actually turned a little bit more minute even and thought about um what kind of uh, cultural systems are they a part of or cultural changes so yeah I think that's gonna be where I kind of focus in on but I know that's still kind of broad in its own right as well yeah and it you know what and it can be subject to change a little bit too right because you've got a little bit time to of time to explore and explicate but I think that you've chosen a really fascinating time in history to look at post-civil war of course I would guess that the reason you focusing on that you are focusing on that area is maybe and i'm just guessing is that when would that be when like american publishing culture started to expand that's a good question i, I would say probably yes uh in the sense that um that you hear more you hear a lot more about um like serialized fiction than right. later becoming um right 
become sort of compiled into a book and then published by somebody. Um, but I think also this is around the time that reading practices also change right. um, okay. in America and, and throughout the world. Um, because, yeah, when, when a piece is serialized in a newspaper, uh, you know, you can picture a sort of group of readers uh, looking at it or, or some or one person in a house reading it to the other people in the house. Um, but then once something becomes a book, reading probably comes a little bit more of a private practice where where it's more like we picture it today, where um, you sort of go into the study and block all the noise out and, and focus in on your book. Sounds like a really fascinating project. And I'm excited to see where you go with it. So keep me, keep me updated for sure. you like to join charles in the big rhetorical podcast the podcast is booking for next season now the big rhetorical podcast offers participants the opportunity to contribute to ongoing conversations within our disciplines and beyond this record of conversations eventually will be a digital archive with the potential to impact the knowledge making and rhetoric writing studies and technical communication as well as adjacent fields do you have a new book coming out are you hitting the job market this cycle the Big Rhetorical Podcast wants to talk to you. The Big Rhetorical Podcast core ideals are similar to a community-based writing project with an emphasis on inclusivity and in localizing knowledge and in strengthening relationships among peers. Make sure to check out our back catalog of episodes as well as listen to our new podcast each week wherever you listen to your podcast. If you have questions about The Big Rhetorical Podcast, please submit a form at the website www.thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. You can also find The Big Rhetorical Podcast on Twitter at TheBigRet. Follow the podcast on Facebook or email us at TheBigRhetorical at gmail.com. A couple of other questions, though, kind of related to the project. And then I want to talk about your venture on Mini Grant, and I want to talk about a couple other things that I know about you, uh, a publication coming up. But before we get to those things, I wonder if you could talk to me a little bit about how your project makes connections to like rhetorical traditions and rhetorical studies. So, what my project ended up focusing in on was uh, was first the author uh, Horatio Alger um, and his famous novel uh, Ragged Dick, which became mm-hmm. sort of the um, how would you say like archetype for the the rags to riches story. Um, and what I wanted to focus on in that book was the minutia of um, cash and money um so also at this time in u.s history um congress passes the uh, legal tender act um, which is sort of in the midst of the civil war and the national banking act 
which create what we know of today as um, sort of cash and money that circulates. Um, so the the greenbacks were issued from the U.S. government to uh, the population and they circulated. Before that, a lot of paper money um, was issued by banks themselves. And so what could happen is um, you would have a note that said $20 on its face, um, but was issued from, let's say, for example, the Bank of Vermont. Um, well, if you wanted to spend that in Tennessee, for example, it would be worth a lot less than what it said on the face because the person who received it would have to travel all the way to Vermont to have it redeemed. Okay. Um, and so with the Legal Tender Act, um, we get the greenback, which is standardized um, throughout the U.S. and 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 fixes that uh, that particular geographic problem um, and also raises um, a ton of money for the union war effort. Um, now, the first greenbacks are also a fiat currency, which means they're not they're not attached to any amount of gold or silver in U.S. vaults. Um, they're simply a promise, um, a promise that at a later date um, it can be redeemed for bonds or for um, sort of whatever a later Congress is going to to say it's worth. Um, and this is primarily a rhetorical exercise um, where uh, what we now have circulating, and it's actually kind of what we know as the dollar bill today, although it would change a lot uh, in between then and its its modern, uh, or I should say contemporary um, manifestation. But yeah, this is essentially a rhetorical process, right? Somebody issuing you a piece of paper with some words on it um, that say, hey, I have the ethos to promise this amount of money or this amount of wealth. Um, and it's based on the fact that you can trust me. Um, and so, yeah, I would say that that the overlap between that project and rhetoric is that is that rhetoric is essentially what the U.S. government re relied upon, right? To say yeah. we're trustworthy, um, you have this sense of patriotism, um, and we have this amount of credit. Um, let's get together and and be um, sort of trusting. And uh, yeah, here's here's your note. Well, that sounds really fascinating, William. I got to say, uh, just hearing you talk a little bit about it and not knowing anything about this history or this, uh, it, it's already making me think about my own project and my own work in, in new ways. Um, fascinating stuff for sure. So you've mentioned that you're interested in the application of literary method, methods to understanding business leadership. How do you think, where do you think that this is going to go? I mean, that may be an unfair question, but like, what do you hope to uncover in, in performing this research? Um, so what we talk about often in English departments, and I think this is true probably of all humanities departments too, um, is that, hey, uh, a degree in English uh, can do so many things for you, right? It teaches you um, good communication. It teaches you uh, how to critically understand uh, some piece of paper that's put in front of you. Um, and so we talk about it a lot, um, but I still haven't seen any rigorous study that says, hey, the English degree definitely improves um, workers' performance in um, skills uh, A, B, and C. And so 
I guess part of what I'm trying to do with the entrepreneurship stuff is to show uh, other business-minded people um, exactly how that English degree can be used uh, or information from English classes used in really practical ways, um, particularly in terms of uh, business leadership and communication. So uh, my, uh, what we call them are ventures, like a business venture. Um, so my venture uh, focuses on the uh, tactics of what's called distance reading um, okay. to, to things like political speeches and business communication. Um, so this comes out of uh, like Franco Moretti and the uh, Stanford Literary Lab. Um, but yeah, to take, to take a text and sort of take a step back from it and say, okay, so really what it is is a collection of these words in this amount or in this proportion um, and thinking about what, what do those proportions and ratios tell us about the voice or tone um, or again, trustworthiness of the speaker. Very cool. I can already think of how this um, how, would connect to so many writing projects, right, that we do in our classrooms. Uh, that's the first jump I made. And I think that that's a good sign, right, some smart scholarship. I have friends who are supporting me with the um, computer programming side of this um, uh -huh. because it does involve a lot of um, coding and, and even a little bit of machine learning. And I was just talking to to one of those friends recently about its application to the classroom. Um, and yeah, it's even it's even interesting for something like um, uh, aesthetics, right? To say, hey, um, maybe you're looking at a comic book and you say, well, it's a picture with words. Um, it's a story um, with these themes. Um, it's done with pastels. Um, but then also to be able to say, well, the word bubbles are also just these words in these amounts um, and used in, in these proportions before you even talk about arrangement. So it gives you even gives you even one more step back um, to kind of assess a text, which I guess that's why they call it distance reading. <laughs> Let's talk about an upcoming publication that you have. It's called Redefining Retcomp Professional Development, and it's a chapter in threshold conscripts through the WAC Clearinghouse. Uh, what's your main argument in that chapter and what can readers expect from the article? Um, so the chapter is itself um, essentially a description of um, the work that, that this cohort is going through at UD um, and sort of how UD structures um, graduate learning. Um, so the, the collection generally uh, is about uh, the disconnect between TAs as, uh, you know, the labor that sort of drives a department um, and their own identities as uh, as scholars um, and as people pursuing advanced study. Um, so the whole book's supposed to be a conversation about that dissonance, about how do you be um, this professional who's also a laborer and then also um, a student who's supposed to be doing um, all these things to, you know, quote, boost your resume or, or however you want to look at it. Um, so my chapter asks the question, hey, during during this pandemic, are, are we having the chance to redefine RETCOMP? Um, and so what I what I centrally do in the chapter, which which is relatively short, um, is just explore the, that tension between freedom 
and obligation that graduate students have, right? Because, um, you know, from the outside, uh, relative to friends of mine who are in, uh, let's say, finance or pharmacy or um, even public relations, um, relative to them, it would seem like I have far fewer obligations or hours that are spent on obligations, right? Seminars only a couple hours, classes maybe a couple hours. Um, but then outside of that, you have all of this freedom to do things. Um, and so the way that I understood uh, professional development before the pandemic um, was going and listening to um, people who are really well-versed in their craft um, speak about it or run workshops about comp and new ways that you can sort of teach it too. Um, but during the pandemic, what I'm increasingly finding is that it's in those hours of freedom that you kind of have to decide what your professional development is going to be for yourself as a grad student. Um, mm -hmm. Now, UD does a really, UD does a really good job of, of sort of giving us the appropriate amount of freedom um, with, with a course load that is pretty heavy on, on obligations. Um, but yeah, what, I, what I'm increasingly finding is that any, any really big steps I'm taking in my own thinking or in my own, um, my own teaching or understanding of teaching happens uh, kind of in those hours in between um, where, where you get a chance to really reflect or really digest something. And so, um, yeah, I guess the, the chapter explores that tension, but then also kind of says, um, hey, maybe, uh, maybe it's time to, to lean more heavily into that freedom um, as a time as a time for the professional development instead of making it a kind of mandatory thing. That's a really smart argument. And it sounds like that's going to be a, a work that whole collections that, that, that we need to take a look at as soon as it comes out um, and how we're thinking about our graduate students, us, right. Um, yeah. Throughout the pandemic, how we can be supported. Luckily it sounds like you're in a, a really supportive place with, uh, with folks that care. And that's exciting. Um, I'm lucky in that way too. So, William, you talked. We talked about your project. You know, your your primary project and how it can already think about application in the classroom. But I know that that's something that you're also interested in, writing pedagogy in the classroom. And so you've done a couple of presentations around this idea of authentic authorship. Uh, what is that, and how have you worked that into your writing pedagogy? Uh, so I view authentic authorship as very much as the umbrella of my uh, of my writing pedagogy. Um, I think there are different ways that that we think about authenticity. Um, so first, um, there's this kind of essentialist way uh, of thinking about authenticity where uh, you think that there's some authentic version of you either, you know, out there in the world, out there in the ether somewhere, or maybe um, kind of buried in your in your subconscious, where uh, in your life you're working to find that authenticity and embody that authenticity. Um, the other side of that is that there's uh, a sort of existentialist view of looking at authenticity, of saying, well, you know, that self doesn't really exist. I create um, myself and my authenticity through the actions that I perform. And of course, uh, between those two, there's there's some kind of gray area, right, where maybe you can you can borrow from from both the essentialist and existentialist tradition. Um, what authentic authorship is 
is encouraging young writers um, to be aware that they don't have an answer to this complicated question of authenticity. Um, and in fact, that's true for all writers and for all people too, all, uh, as well, right? Um, and so authentic authorship is about being really conscious about how you're exploring and constructing and conforming to one's identity during the writing process. Fascinating stuff. And you've found success both at Villanova and LaSalle, uh, LaSalle with, uh, with this approach, I suppose. Uh, yeah. So, so as I mentioned earlier, um, I got a, uh, I got a personal grant, um, at the end of the diversity and inclusion project at Balvey Memorial Library. And, uh, with that personal grant, I took, uh, the following summer, uh, to just kind of do my own personal research and develop my own, um, seminar surrounding, I just had this broad idea of, of thinking about authenticity. And so, with that grant, I made that seminar and came back to um, the Idea Accelerator, which was a part of the School of Business and the Entrepreneurship Program, and and gave the talk. Um, and there was uh, some really great people there, um, people who were um, CEOs or, or founders of startups, as well as students and friends. Um, so yeah, that that work in diversity and inclusion gave me the the kind of free time to to think about authenticity and identity in writing um, and I used it to develop that seminar and uh, yeah about gosh I guess it was six months or a year later um, I was hired at LaSalle to do writing tutoring and it was right around the time of their pedagogy summit and they were sending out all kinds of calls for papers and things like that and I, I kind of quickly quickly replied that I had this I had this seminar ready and ready to give. And so um, that time I reframed it a little bit more in terms of how, how can it be used for students. Um, and I still stand by a lot of what I said in, in that presentation. I think that I think that as comp professors, we have to be more comfortable asking students to write about their own experience. Um, I know there are some popular assignments, things like literary narratives where um, students will talk about their relationship to reading and writing, um, but I think our interest in our students has to be a little bit a little bit greater than that um, in order to give them the space to to explore their identities and explore what authenticity means to them because because that work um, is is not only transferable to any job you'll get it's it's transferable to to real life and interpersonal relationships and things like that. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with William Rapetto. I can't wait to learn more from him in the future. In the coming weeks, keep an eye out for information about more ways the Big Rhetorical Podcast plans to highlight the work of graduate students and give back to our scholarly community. And the second annual Big Rhetorical Podcast Carnival is coming in August. Our theme, Misinformation in the Classroom and the Community. We're already building a stellar lineup of podcasters for that event. You can find more information on our website, thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. And follow us on Twitter, at TheBigRet. 
reach out to us and leave us a five-star rating and write a review to help us enhance visibility on podcast platforms. Until next time, always be listening rhetorically. Thank you.